Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 15. And uh, as you're turning there, uh, so uh, for those who are not here every week, maybe you're visiting for the first time, I don't normally preach on Sundays, I get to preach on graduation Sunday each and every year to support our graduates, but also to give uh, Pastor Rex and other pastors some time off. So, uh, so things are a little bit different. Just like I said, come back next week and see something that's more normal. But um, so as a few months ago, as I always start to pray, reflect, and see, hey, Lord, what do you want to tell this congregation on this one specific day? Um, he led me to Acts chapter 15. And, and just, uh, I guess, and I titled this sermon, Wisdom for the American Church, because honestly, this is a message that I believe I could walk in any church today and say, hey, here's a message that I think you could listen to. Um, kind of deal. And so since True North Church, last time I checked, is actually in the United States of America, I think it counts, right, that this would be a message for, for us to listen to today as individuals and as a church. Um, but one of the things I would start off with is that I personally am a huge advocate, and I think it's very important for us to look back into the past, study history, whether it is our personal history, whether it's our family history, or even history of our country or the world. Because I think two things we can accomplish when we look back into the past. We can see all of the successes and say, yay, good job, let's, let's continue to do that. But also we look back into the past and say, ugh, there's some ugly stains in, our, in, our, in the past here. Maybe we can do better. Maybe we can learn from the past and move forward into the future doing better in being more faithful to our Lord. Now, for those who maybe are familiar with um, the Bible stuff, so Acts chapter 15 is, is about a very, very important event in the history of the early church. And it's usually referred to as the Jerusalem Council. And we're going to dive into this story, this item in history. But one thing I just want, I guess, to, for us to tune into is that this, what we're reading today, what the story we're going through is not just something that's part of world history or ancient history or even just our early church history, but it's within our own Christian scriptures. It's within the Bible. So as Christians, anything that's within our scriptures, we ought to pay attention to, right? And so I want us to, before we dive into the actual uh, passage today, I just sort of want to give a little bit of, I guess, uh, a little bit of context so we know what we're getting into so up to this point, Jesus has already come. He's already died on the cross for our sins. He's already been resurrected from the dead. And he's already ascended to the kingdom of God at the right hand of God the Father. And uh, Jesus has already left God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, outpoured here on earth in believers. So now we're at this point, we have the early church. They're starting to form, to come together. Uh, uh, evangelists like Paul and Barnabas and Peter are going out, sharing the good news of Jesus out in to the world. And so as this was going on, the early church had some unique circumstances and tensions that happened. And one of the big ones they had to face was that there were these two different people groups. You had these groups called the Jews, and then you had these groups called the Gentiles. Now, if, you, if you're not familiar with a little bit about ancient history or the Bible, they were complete, total opposites. Now, I don't know about you, but when you watch TV, sometimes they'll say, well, opposites attract each other, right? You know, and there might be some truth to that. I'm not here to debate that today. 
But what most people don't tell you is that opposites usually tend to attack each other or clash or might have some tensions because you're very different. Just ask my wife. She will let you know about that. But the truth is, this is what's going on. You have these two different groups. You've got the Jews and the Gentiles. They thought differently. They believed differently. They ate differently. They had fellowship together differently. They had different lifestyles, different cultural things. And so what's happening is that these Jews who are coming to know Jesus and these Gentiles who are coming to know Jesus, they're having to come together to hang out with each other and have fellowship and live out on mission for the Lord, right? Oh, how different people sometimes make us feel uncomfortable, right? And this is no different in the early church. But as this was going on, they came across certain crossroads that they had to navigate through. And in this passage in Acts 15, there were two big things they needed to resolve. It's about Christian salvation and Christian fellowship. Or in short, what are the requirements for Christian salvation? What are the requirements for Christian fellowship? And as we dive into our scriptures, we will see today that, huh, back then, they had some issues trying to answer these questions. So we will start off in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. And Luke writes this, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent out on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order, and in order them to keep the law of Moses. All right, so a recap of these first few verses. So you have these Christians who came from a, from a Jewish background. They were saying, hey, you Christians from a Gentile background, you don't only have to believe in Jesus, but you got to believe in Jesus and be circumcised in order to be saved. And then we see the Apostle Paul and Barnabas step in and say, time out. We've been proclaiming the good news of Jesus to these Gentiles, and they've believed in the gospel and received God's spirit. What, what else should there be? So they have this disagreement about the requirements for Christian salvation. So how do they approach and, and solve this problem? Well, we'll see starting in verse 6. Luke continues to write, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples, 
that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. So a recap of, this, of these few verses. So we had this conflict about Christian salvation. And so they gathered together, the apostles and the Jerusalem elders, to discuss and debate on this topic. And then Peter, who was one of the closest disciples of Jesus, steps up. No, he's from a Jewish background. He says, hey guys, you know God has called me to share the good news of Jesus to these Gentiles. And when we did this, they believed in Jesus. And when that happened, they received God's spirit. Just as when you Jews, my fellow Jews, when you believed in Jesus, you received God's spirit as well. And so Peter's argument is, well, if God has given them his spirit and all they did was believe in Jesus, place their faith, place their trust in him, then there are no other further requirements. That's his argument. So what happens after Peter makes his point? We'll go on in verse 12. Luke continues to write, And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. And then James continues, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from things that have been strangled, and from blood. For from, from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every, sab- every Sabbath in the synagogues. So at this point, so now Peter has already said his two cents to uh, the apostles and the Jerusalem elders. So now James, the brother of Jesus, who would have been part of the Jerusalem elders, steps up and says, you know what, what Peter just said? I think he's right. What he testified, what God's Spirit has done to these Gentiles once they believed is testified by the words of the prophets. And if you told any Jew in the ancient world, something, a words that come from the prophets are words that come straight from God. That was actually the role of a prophet, was to deliver a message from God to the people of God. So any and all words that come from the mouth of the prophet were always viewed and understood as words that come directly from God himself. And so James is saying, looks like they believe in the gospel, receive God's spirit, And that settles the matter about Christian salvation. So what do they do next after Peter and James give their opinions? So we see, starting in verse 22, Luke concludes this segment and says this, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders 
with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. <clears throat> the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we've heard that some persons have gone out from among us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So at the conclusion of this council between the elders and the apostles and Peter and James, they all say, hey, we ought to write a letter to our fellow Christians from a Gentile background about these matters of Christian salvation and Christian fellowship to once settle their minds and their hearts because they have been confused. They've been told other things. And we want to give them that clarity and that peace of mind and peace of heart. And they meant it so seriously, they didn't just write the letter and send a mail. They sent people to deliver the letter and say, hey, this is true. This is authentic. This is not fake. So up to this point, all that we've done today is journey through Acts chapter 15 and looking at the past. Here's what happened, and here's what happened. So what can we learn, the positives and the negatives? What can we learn today as individuals and as a church moving forward from looking back in the past in history. Now, I could probably give you a long laundry list of things because we went through a, a long passage today, right? But today, I'm going to keep it under 10 hours and only give you three things that I think that we today can draw from this passage. And the first thing is this. Christians should focus on the person of Jesus, his teachings, and his mission. So the whole start of the scene was that you had these Christians from a Jewish background. They were distracted. They were not focused on Jesus, not focused on his teachings, and not focused on the mission at hand. They were distracted by cultural customs or their perceptions of how to understand the law of Moses and said, ha you have to believe in Jesus and get circumcised in order to be saved. They were distracted. They needed to be corrected and set straight. But even throughout all of church history, we've seen this example repeated over and over again. Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus baptism. Jesus plus church attendance. Jesus plus must have a specific political affiliation. We do this over and over and over again. But the scriptures are very clear. There's only one requirement for Christian salvation. And that is when a person, they're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. They place their faith their trust, and give their lives over to the person of Jesus. And that's all that's required for Christian salvation. So what about, what about us? Are we focused on Jesus? 
Or we focus on someone or something else. Or we focus on his teachings. Or we focus on the teachings of the world or pop culture. Or we focus on his mission. Or are we focused on our own selfish mission? And in fact, Jesus spells this out for all of his followers, past, present, and future. And he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. In short, Jesus is saying, Christians, my followers, my people, go share the good news, my good news, God's good news, through Jesus out into the world. Tell non-believers of me and my good news. And then not only just baptize them physically, but baptize them in the sense of bringing them into the community of faith. But then even the next step is once someone becomes a new believer, a new follower of Christ, do we purposely and deliberately teach them the ways and teachings of Jesus? And we need to think about this because the truth is, if we as individuals and if we as a church are not doing these things, can we say that we're being a faithful and biblical church? I think it's hard to look at the lens of Scripture and it challenges us. So let's stay focused on Jesus, his teachings, and his mission. Number two, I think we can get from this passage. Christians should not add more to God's requirements. Now, I know we live in an age, in 2022, social media, everyone's got, everyone's an expert in everything these days, right? Everyone's got their own opinions, their own preferences, their own uh, desires, and we blast that out on social media 24-7. Yes, I understand we're in America, we live, in, we live in a free country, we're allowed to have our opinions, or preferences, but the question is, is there a point where we cross the line and we add burdens to our very own brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we sit there and say, hey, you have to have this requirement of clothing in order to have fellowship with us. You have to have this requirement of uh, income in order to have fellowship with us. You must actually cheer for certain teams in order to have fellowship with us. We laugh, we laugh, but deep down, when people are different than us, our instinct is to push away, to resist. And so our instinct is to add expectations. Whether they're deliberate or conscious or subconscious, those who are different than us, who look differently, think differently, maybe are a little bit different culturally, our instinct is to I'm going to add my own expectations. I'm going to add my own requirements for you to have fellowship. And to me, that's not only not a shame, but is a sham as well. And in fact, what does Jesus himself say in Matthew 11? He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Christians, Jesus is the only one who has the authority to place a yoke on you. If I myself say, here are my opinions, here are my preferences, and I place a yoke upon you, according to Peter, he says, you are testing God. Testing God. 
I don't think you need to be too religious to know that testing God is probably a foolish enterprise. But do we do that? Even if we don't mean to do that, do we, do we add requirements? Even if it's just perceptions on other people when they walk through the door, the first look, the first thought that we have, is it an added expectation, an added requirement for Christian fellowship? It's very challenging, isn't it? And the third and final thing I think we can get, that we can learn from the past in this scenario, is that today, Christians, we need to understand that just because we have God's Spirit within us, that doesn't mean that we're invincible, infallible, or infinite. If we go back in the story, who was wrong in this scenario? There were Christians baptized by the Holy Spirit. Christians baptized by the Holy Spirit. They were distracted. They were, they were sort of a little bit deceived in, by cultural tr- uh, customs and traditions from their past. And just because they have the Spirit, that doesn't mean that you're invincible, infallible, or infinite. And here's, I guess, some, some examples. Just because we have God's Spirit, that doesn't mean we're going to stop sinning. Yes, God's Spirit enables us and empowers us to fight off and fend off temptation so that we don't sin. That's true. Just because we've got spirit, that doesn't mean we're going to make 100 on every test the rest of our lives, right? Oh, yeah, I'll never make a mistake ever again. I can tell you that. I made the mistakes yesterday. I can tell you that. Or even infinite. Oh, just because we have the Holy Spirit, that doesn't mean that we have elevated to God's status. We're divine. We're little gods. No, no, no. Oh, no, no. Only God himself is infinite. I, myself, we are finite human beings. And we need to depend upon God. What does the Apostle Paul say in Galatians to the Christians there? And he says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Just because we Christians might have God's Spirit within our hearts, guess what? We still have to submit to God's will, the teachings of Jesus, and live them out. We still have personal free choice. Just because we have God's Spirit, that doesn't mean we're an autopilot. We're just, we're just doing our own thing, and we're, oh, we're never going to sin, blah, blah, blah. That's just simply not true. Having the Holy Spirit doesn't negate our choices, our obedience, and having to submit to God and His will each and every day in each and every moment of our lives. So if the worship team could make their way to the front. So why, why do we all need to hear this message? Especially, especially for our graduates, our high school, college graduates. You're about to transition into a new season, a new chapter in your life. And I think it's a good time to pause, reflect, and evaluate, and even ask yourself these questions. Am I focused on Jesus? Or am I focused on someone or something else? Am I focused on his teachings? Or am I listening to the world and pop culture or something else? Am I focused on his mission? Or am I going to turn the page of the next chapter of my life and do my own thing? My own selfish, man-made, man-motivated mission. What about requirements? Do we push away people and say, well, you're different than me, so you can't have fellowship 
with us? Or are you the person that maybe the seed of pride has entered in your heart and you think, ah, I got God's spirit, I'm going to heaven. I don't need to be watchful of my behaviors. I don't need to really study the Bible that much. I really, I'm okay, I'm good. It seems to be not what we see in the scriptures. So let's look ourselves in the mirror and ask ourselves those questions as individuals and as a church. Join me in prayer. God, Father, Son, Spirit, thank you so much for this opportunity to, to worship you and also to recognize and celebrate the milestone of graduation. And Lord, I just pray, Lord, that this message that you have given each of us today, Lord, that we at least take one thing from this message so that we can step forward into the future being faithful to you. And I say all this in your name. Amen.